This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Here we are back again. It is now episode 67 of the Best Friends Podcast. I'm John Dunn, and to be honest, I wasn't totally sure if we'd make it to 10 episodes. So we want to thank you for listening and for continuing to share the podcast with others and for letting us know that you're not just enjoying it, that you're hearing new ideas and programs, and in some cases, that it is helping to shape your work. Absolutely incredible. So we'd love to hear from you. You can email us. Here's the address, podcast at bestfriends.org. Maybe you have a favorite episode so far, one that really got you thinking, or maybe we ruffled your feathers a bit. And if we haven't done the last one yet, maybe today is the day. Podcast at bestfriends.org. Let's talk about adoptions, the adoption process. What are the requirements an adopter should have to meet? The answers to that question vary wildly. And I'm not trying to argue semantics, but it might be more accurately described as disqualifications. What about an individual and their situation might I find that will rule them out? What layers can we peel back from their lives in order to find something that proves they are or are not adopter material? And I think we're all familiar with these types of questions, right? Does a potential dog adopter have a fenced yard? What is the age of the adopter and or the pet? What about whether they own or rent an apartment or a house? Are they a first time pet owner? What about someone who returned an animal? Would you adopt to them? There are very few topics in the industry that get people going like this one. Because I think at its core, it's as if we're challenging each other's level of caring. Do this and you're reckless. Do that and you're putting other lives at stake. For those who are practicing open adoptions, the conversation can suggest that, you know, you're not doing enough to secure the best and safest home for that animal. And those who have a very stringent process, well, does that extra time and effort guarantee a better home? And what is the result of turning adopters away? How does that impact the animals that will lose their lives in shelters each and every day? So yeah, it's easy to see how this gets out of hand very quickly. This episode is about the adoption process, and I'd like to try to challenge some of the beliefs we may have about what a perfect home is, what a perfect adopter is, and consider the role each of us can and should play in the overall effort to save lives. Today's guest is Lawrence Nicholas, He's the chief operating officer for the Peggy Adams Animal Rescue League in West Palm Beach, Florida, but he's heading north. He very recently accepted a position to be the chief operating officer for the Jacksonville Humane Society. I feel like I've known you for a long time now, but I'm, I don't know a ton about your background. How'd you get into all this? So I started working at the Dumb Friends League in 2008 as an adoptions coordinator. Uh, got my foot in the door. I went to school thinking I wanted to do nonprofit public relations, and the Dumb Friends League was a big nonprofit in Denver. I didn't know anything about animal shelters. I just wanted to, to get my foot in the door in the nonprofit sector, and I took an adoptions job. And I had no idea what I was walking into. I didn't even know that animal sheltering was an industry. didn't know that it was a job. And it just changed my life almost immediately. And, you know, almost 15 years later, here I am just still loving every day. Is this a job? I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure. Someone pays me to do something, but. (laughs) And my boss, Tawny Hammond, also one of the producers of the podcast, she would say this is a calling. And I totally agree with that. And I would just add that uh, I feel damn lucky to be able to do it. Absolutely. I mean, we are lucky enough to be able to to have real impact in our lives. You know, like 
I'm not a doctor. I never will be, but I get to help save lives every day. And that's pretty cool. Well, let's talk about adoptions, uh, adoption processes, open adoptions, I suppose, to be more specific. Can you just define from your perspective, when we talk about open adoptions, what does that mean? Open adoptions to me just really means matching up an animal that is the right fit for the individual and not getting focused on creating artificial barriers to being able to, to have that person take an animal home. At the end of the day, this person has come to us to, to adopt, to save a life. And who are we to, to, to put up barriers or to make that more of a challenge? There's so many animals across the country in every community that need to be saved. And that's what we're there for. That's the reason why we came in today to come, come to work or to volunteer. So making sure that we are we have steps in place and we're doing everything we can to to find the right fit for that person. Obviously, open adoptions doesn't mean adopt any pet to anyone for any reason on any day. It is our responsibility still to do good matchmaking and to be thoughtful, um, but also keeping in mind that the person who gets to be the matchmaker to make that decision is ultimately the adopter. They know more about their bandwidth or their ability to care for a pet than, than certainly we're ever going to learn from a one page or 10 page adoption application or a one minute or three hour interview, we're still not gonna know. Allowing people to make the choice for themselves about what animal is right for them and for their family today, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I wanna go through some of the more common reasons adopters are denied. I've got a list, uh, maybe we can go through some of them one by one, but at the highest level, knowing I was gonna be talking to you, I was thinking that it's uh, this is almost like customer relationship management. Let me explain. If we worked at a local business, our goal is to offer a product that people want. We need to deliver exceptional service. We want customers to come back. We want them to be repeat customers. We want them to call us if they have a problem. And you know, we want them to know how to use the things they're buying from us because that makes them happier with the purchase, right? And over time, we are able to create these long lasting relationships. But that only makes sense as an analogy if you accept that the adopter, not the pet, but the adopter is our customer. And I think the disconnect sometimes can be that we forget who the customer is. Absolutely. We're here to save lives. We're doing it because we're deeply passionate about animals and helping them, saving them. But the customer in our business, is it the pet or is it the person, the adopter, the donor, the volunteer? And I... I think we lose sight of it sometimes. And of course, then that can get balled up into the, you know, I hate people mentality. I think you're exactly right. You know, we do so much work on the front end of an adoption, uh, making people take time out and applications and interviews, and then they adopt the pet. And then that's it. We, we often say goodbye. I mean, how often, this is like nails on a chalkboard for me is no news is good news. You know, we don't, I haven't heard you from the adopter. No news is good news. Must be going fine. But the adoption should be the start of a relationship, not the end. That's that's also just such a key piece in 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 open adoptions or any adoption program that's going to be successful is understanding. Yeah, we're going to send this pet home. We're going to we certainly hope or we think it's the best batch. But what we can do to really help support that is by having a relationship with this person tomorrow. Like I'll call you tomorrow. Let me know what challenges you're having. Let's work through them because we don't know what challenges you're going to have today. We we've seen the pet for a week, a month. It's in a foster home. Maybe we don't we don't necessarily know that much about what challenges you're actually going to face. 
Um, but and you're and you're absolutely right that we spend so much time focusing on that right match on the front end instead of allowing for for it to just happen more organically, like you would with any relationship, and dealing with the problems that may come up as they as they do. So I kicked off the episode by pointing out that this topic, adoption requirements, it's hot button stuff, and you know you just have to see a couple of discussions on social media about this, and you know I mean you'll see people become really defensive and say you know it'll sort of boil down to, well, you know what? You do what you want and we'll do what we think is best, right? Heard. But also we don't exist in silos, man. I mean, the decisions my organization makes will reflect on all of us, good and bad. I think that's probably why coalitions work so well, right? We've got everybody talking on the same page, kind of a united voice and message uh, out to the public. So yeah, what each of us does affects each other and whether you intend it to or not, what you do will impact the larger mission at hand of ending the killing of cats and dogs in shelters. I, I absolutely could not agree more. I mean, we we very often forget that we are all one big animal welfare industry, whether you are a large municipal in a major city, a small municipal at the county level, a private nonprofit or a foster based rescue. Like we're not that different. And to us here inside, we feel very, very different. But if you just ask the average layperson, they don't necessarily know the difference that well. So when somebody has a bad experience with one organization, wherever that organization is, or that they're made to feel uh, inferior or not able to care for an animal, that's bad for the whole industry. That's That drives people to make convenient pet choices instead of helping us save a life because they went to an organization and were asked for many, many documents. And it was a very cumbersome process when they know they can get a cat or dog by the end of the day, one way or another. So being able to, to help ensure that our organizations can meet that need too is really, really important. I mean, so often we're driving people, I see this chatter on social media where we are driving individuals to pet stores, to breeders, because it's because we made it so difficult to save a life. And that's just, that's really, that's really unfortunate when we still have such a long way to go. I just want to go back to the customer relationship management concept that the adopter is a customer, a consumer. Because as you said, if they don't buy from me, they're going to buy from somewhere. And that somewhere probably won't be offering what I do, the same level of service. They won't have my unbeatable return policy, my amazing website full of helpful resources and chat and phone support. But I just want to say that I hope I'm not losing people on this analogy because I think it's a good one. Yes, I acknowledge animals are not pants or microwaves, and I'm not suggesting they are. But if we think of that relationship I want to gain that customer for life. I want them out there telling their friends and family, the world about my store. And I want to be there for them to make sure they get what they need and come back to me in this case for a new pet. So I think I just came up with a good uh, name for this episode. Episode 67 of the Best Friends Podcast, Animals Are Not Pants. Uh, anyway, so I'm curious about your process on an individual adopter and the matches. I think a lot of times, you know, we're striving for perfection on adoption matches. And it makes me think of that old adage, perfect is enemy of the good, right? What, what are you looking for for your adopters at Peggy Adams? Is it perfection? Is it close to perfection? Like how much are you really trying to make sure that match is dead on? There's, there's no such thing as a perfect fit and there's no way to know that today. There's, I, I can't think of a time that we've adopted out. I've ever been a part of an adoption where I just said, 
that's it, slam dunk, and then it was right. I mean, we've had situations on both spectrums recently where an animal, we think, oh, this is gonna be a great fit. A, a long time volunteer adopted a dog and we're like, oh, this is gonna be such a great fit. It didn't work out and that was okay. Or other examples where you know a, a group of young younger people comes in and the team's a little hesitant to adopt this big blocky headed dog to them and they love him. They were in our clinic for vaccines the other day. And there's just, there's no way for us to be able to say in an adoption council that we are, that we know for sure what tomorrow is going to look like. We don't know what challenges the adopter is or isn't going to face once they get the pet in the home. We just don't know the situation that well. So I would absolutely every time much rather give the animal and the adopter a chance if because they can decide what they can take on and what they can't and if it ends up being such that it's not a great match for them for whatever reason that's that's perfectly fine we get more information about the pet we get more information about the adopter they learn more themselves and when they're ready to adopt another pet whether it's that same day or they want to take a break or adopt in a little while that's great they'll, they'll they're more equipped to make the right decision um for themselves too I am thrilled to be able to report that we have all collectively decided that pivot is a banned word after the last 15 months. Uh, <laughs> but if there was a term that I would love to add to the banned pile in animal welfare, it's forever home. I mean, what does that even mean? It's problematic, I think, in, in a few ways. But it, it, the biggest is that it just sets up the potential. Uh, it's a scenario of shame. Like if the adopter can't make it work, even though they did every single thing they could. And it was just something that just wasn't working. This was a forever home, right? That's what we told you. That's what the expectation was. So you failed. Who likes to fail? Who likes to be told they failed? Certainly who likes to be told they failed a living being, right? But there shouldn't be shame in that. If it's not working, that's not good for you. It's not good for the pet. So you'd think that returns should be seen as the system working as intended. But I'm curious, how do you handle returns? People who return pets to you at Peggy Adams, do you adopt animals out to them if they've returned to you? Absolutely. A, a return is not a reason to decide that they can't adopt another pet in the future. Absolutely not. Unless there's a situation that would require, you know, a, a, an investigation or something like that, like a really serious situation. Absolutely not. Um, as many as many tries as it takes you know we want to make sure that it's that it's the right fit for for everybody there's no limit to returns and i think the thing that's interesting too about forever like forever homes and adoptions lasting forever is that we all yes that's something that is in our lexicon and it sticks in our minds but then when we talk about fostering we're perfectly okay with it being fluid but what's the difference really we're, we're taking a, a pet into the home for a while and deciding if it's a good fit or not. And if our, you know, our foster parents that we love, that we build our organizations around, decide that they can't keep a pet anymore because it's not working out in their home, we, we take the pet back, we give them a hug, and we send them with somebody else. But when an adopter does it, all, all that's different is that they signed a different piece of paper. But it's the same situation. They're taking an animal home to see if it's a good fit for their family or trying to help the shelter or whatever is motivating them to decide to take home a pet today. And if, if for whatever reason that doesn't work out in the future, that's that's perfectly okay. We should we should think about every adoption as a foster because it's it really the difference. There really is no difference. I love that. Every adoption is a foster home until further notice. I love that. Well, let's go through some of the more common reasons people are denied an adoption. 
I have a list. Uh, you may have some as well. But let's start with vet checks. Something I think is quite common still. Is that something you do? You've, you have done any of the places you've ever worked. Why or why not? It's not something that, that we do at either organization. It's not something that I've ever supported. And I, I don't think it's a good practice or a good, frankly, good use of time and resources. So many people don't have regular established veterinarians, and that's okay. And what we should be doing is helping them establish one, find one. By no means are we downplaying as an industry the importance of having a regular veterinarian and a relationship there. We see how valuable that is throughout a pet's life and, and an adopter's life. They establish a relationship. All of their pets can go see that person, and it, that's great for everybody. Uh, but to expect someone to have a veterinarian ready name and phone number to, to put on that application and then have the have our staff or volunteers call the clinic for like a reference check is uh it's just that's not a good that's not a good practice and and i guess the question too is what answer are we looking for did they like what what are the questions that did we did they try everything with their last pet how often do they come are they up to date on vaccines you know none of none of that is is a relevant question in terms of how well they'll be able to care for this pet that we're taking home today which is ideally up to date on vaccines right now hopefully already spayed or neutered or it's not going to be and let's help this adopter get on the path to be able to find a regular veterinarian rather than requiring one before we even have a conversation with them Lawrence of all the things I may or may not be I would hope that I am a good cat dad but uh, I'll let you know a little secret. Uh, my cats are not up to date on their vaccines. Uh, and that means probably a lot of organizations wouldn't adopt me right now, but it happens. I, I know people, people we know, peers, colleagues, the most brilliant people in this field, some of the best pet owners imaginable, they've been denied because a box like that wasn't checked. And I always try to remember with the vet check one, you know, one reason you might not have a vet is that you've never owned a pet. And that, the first-time adopter, that people, you know, some organizations don't want a first-time adopter. Yeah, absolutely. And we should go, we should be going the other way with that. We should be reaching out, doing outreach to first-time adopters. We should be really looking for people who, who aren't already plugged into our animal welfare field and helping them learn and understand the problem. I mean, like I, I said earlier, when I started in the animal shelter in 2008, I didn't even know the industry existed and it changed my life. And how many people are in that same boat? Don't even know. Many of my peer group don't don't really even understand what what my job is or what the animal shelter is going through every day. It's just not it's not pervasive in in younger people right now. So being able to to bring people into our movement and help them understand the challenges that we're facing every day in every single community is is really really important. Driving young younger people away or people who have not adopted a pet before into the shadows, if you will, to find a pet somewhere else is it's it's super shooting ourselves in the foot there for not just this adoption, but for over the course of, of many, many years. Reminds me a little bit of that credit catch 22. So, you know, like uh, when you're younger and you're trying to like build your credit, you know, you'll uh, apply for a loan or a credit card and you get turned down. And the reason they give you is that you don't have enough credit history. Okay. Well, how do I build credit history? unless you're willing to give me credit. <laughs> but the first time adopter, I mean, yes, please. Like that's the person who we can help them from day one. Any concerns you might have about their ability to care for a pet, help them. You're there for them. And if you're supportive and open, they're going to come to you for help and for information. 
and you can mold them into like a picture perfect pet owner. Like it just, the way we look at some of these things, sometimes it just, it's also counterintuitive. Completely agree. It's an audience that's just waiting for us to speak to them and we don't, or what we tell them drives them away. And yeah, they're, they're here. They want to, they, they, they're at, and that's the thing that always amazes me too, is this person who we're, who we're putting up barriers to came to our facility or reached out to us to want to help save an animal. They already made a great first step. They've made a good choice. And now we have put up a challenge or a barrier in, in place for them that they may not be able to overcome because they are a first time adopter. They like to your point with credit, what are they going to do? How are they going to not be a first time adopter? Their only option is to get an animal through a, a means that we would probably prefer that they didn't. And then when they come later to adopt and they put that on their application, well, that's another red strike. And now this person's never going to be able to adopt a pet ever. It's a uh, it's. Again, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot without really good outreach to those people. So another qualification or disqualification, I suppose is probably better said, uh, that's kind of connected to pet ownership history is age, age of the adopter, too old, too young, the age of the animal, not matching the individual, right? So somebody, uh, an older person comes in and they want a kitten, for example. Do you have restrictions on age? I mean, the youngest, for example, what's the minimum age you require an adopter to be? Uh, Old enough to enter into a legal agreement. So 18 years old, that's that's our, that's our what we require. And every situation is unique and every situation is different. That's why you know, blanket policies are very, very few. You need to be old enough to sign the contract and be willing to take on the pet. And anything else is, is a conversation. An 18 year old, brand new, first time adopter, maybe the, the most challenging dog in the shelter may not be the right fit for them and that's fine. But it doesn't mean that they can't they can't meet that pet or have have a, a meeting with any other of the animals in the shelter. It's just a, a blanket policy around around age on the high end or the low end is just not it's just not helpful. You're looking at someone who's never really had the wisdom of his years. I like to think I'm getting caught up now, uh, but it is an individual situation. It always is. We know that animals are individuals. We treat them that way, but we don't always do that with people. Like somehow some people decided that enough 20 year olds are irresponsible. Uh, you know, maybe your own kids, me, I'm sure my dad would say that 20 year old me was pretty irresponsible. So you know what? We're going to say, don't adopt to any 20 year old. One of our cats, my wife adopted him when she was 19 years old. She, she checked all of these boxes. She, at another shelter in the Denver area, she got a landlord check. Her friend sat in the car and pretended to be that landlord. That's incredible. Yep. Pretended to be the landlord. We know that happens all the time. And we love him. His name's George. He's got three legs and he's still, he's still rocking and rolling. And they tried very hard to say no to her at 19 years old. They, we put up the barriers, the landlord check, the whole thing. And we just, there's no way for us to know. There's no way to know. There's no way to know. So we, we shouldn't make assumptions or, or discriminate based on age. You know, it's, it is, and I, and I choose to use that word deliberately when I talk about this, because this is one of the last areas where we're just perfectly comfortable discriminating against people based on on any myriad of reasons but age is is certainly one of them and we say you are too young or too old to have this service or be a part of of this this movement i mean you can call it whatever you want but it really is unfortunately discrimination so i just want to clarify george with three legs that's the cat, not the friend who posed as a landlord. <laughs> Correct. Yes. George is the cat and he has three legs. 
<laughs> and we love him. We've loved him for 15 years. So what about some others, uh, you know, the other end? How old is too old? 80-year-old adopting a kitten, 97-year-old adopting a 14-year-old dog. It's, it's like so many of the other bullets, like you've been talking about how they're all interconnected, that it's really, it's up it's up to the individual adopter to make the best choices for themselves. And we don't know what tomorrow holds. We never know. I mean, who planned on 2020 looking the way it did? Nobody. There's just no way to know that something will come up in your life where if you lose your job tomorrow or you're, you are relocating next week or any number of things that could come up in your life. And those things happen. It just, that's part of living, you know, it's part of life. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to provide a great life for a pet just because you move. We've all we've all moved with pets. I mean, who hasn't had to move with their pets? And it probably wasn't, you know, great. It wasn't a blast, but everybody was fine. That's not a reason to 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 decide out of hand that we're not going to adopt them this pet right now. Or, no, so often what we would say or what I've heard is, well, why don't you get moved first and then come back? And we'll, you know, we'll talk in a talk in a month or two. And that's us again making decisions for the adopter. They're much more equipped to decide what's the timeline for them themselves. We don't know what's going on with their lives. Maybe once they move, they've got they're starting a new job, or right now might be the the best time for them to bring on a pet. That's why they're here after all. It's because they want to adopt a pet. Let's not decide for them what's the right decision or what's the right timeline in their lives. I just want to reinforce that point about life changes. Life changes a lot. I mean, I'm lucky to have a stable job. I've been with best friends for a long time, hopefully for a lot longer, maybe not after some of these podcasts come out. Uh, you know, my wife is a municipal employee. Uh, we're very lucky to have that stability, but it could all change tomorrow. So even though today, you know, I check all those boxes as a perfect adopter, tomorrow I might not be. And what does that mean? Are you going to come and take the pet from me because I lost my job? And, you know, if we think about a pet owner, very little means someone who's financially struggling, maybe they were laid off because of the pandemic, but they're looking for a pet. They've got time at home uh, and, you know, they want the companionship. They want the comfort a pet can bring in some ways, no better time. But so many organizations would absolutely not. You don't have a job, you don't have money, you can't afford it, shouldn't have it. Well, maybe that job they've been trying to get, they get it. Maybe it's a week, a month, six months from now. It's just of all the requirements and the beliefs, this one that, you know, life is somehow going to be the same. I mean, whose life has remained constant? If yours has, please email podcast at bestfriends.org. If you and your living situation, your income are the same as, as it was 10 years, five years ago. I mean, we all have ups and downs and I don't want to single anybody out and, and for anybody to feel attacked, but I saw this one recently and I, I have to say it, there are apparently, and I didn't know this, organizations that ask if you're going to start a family in the next decade. Like, are you planning to have children, young couple? Well, I think it's from a good place. It's always from a good place. We're all trying to do right by the pet. But, you know, as you said earlier, Lawrence, whether it's pregnancy or income or whatever, I mean, a lot of that's just discrimination. It really is. And in the income one that you just touched on is, is one that's very always been very interesting to me. And it's 
like, it makes me ask the question, what, what are we, like, what are we afraid is going to happen? Like, what is the problem that we're trying to avoid here? Because we don't know. I mean, are, are we saying that this pet's going, like, we know this pet's going to have significant medical issues in five years, so plan for it? I mean, we, there's just, there's no, there's no way to know that. Like, how about we solve that problem when it comes up, like we do with everything else in our lives? Let's not decide today that, that this person won't be able to deal with a problem that hasn't even happened yet or may likely never happen and decide in that moment that we're not going to adopt a pet to that person. So arbitrary. Again, an acknowledgement, animals are not inanimate objects. They are individuals. They're living beings. And no one is saying we just throw them on people's doorsteps like newspapers without any thought. But yet life changes in an instant. I'm 41. I hope I keep going, but I know people, we all do, that have died at my age. Conversely, my wife's grandmother, I think she was 98. She had cancer several times. I mean, she was active and basically healthy, not in the hospital until really towards the very end. She could have adopted a puppy at 80 and outlived the dog. So, I mean, can we play the odds? We put on our insurance actuary hat, sure. And I'm not suggesting that every 90-year-old gets a free kitten, but these lines of just absolutes that we drawn, they're arbitrary and they don't work. It sure is. And honestly, to me, the, the hours home conversation is what I don't even think about anymore, but it connects back to, in my mind, uh, actually the, the income income piece that if you're if you're fortunate enough to have a regular schedule, to have a nine to five, like so many of so many of us don't. We don't know what our work schedule is going to be like next week, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to be a great pet owner. I mean, most of us don't know. Most of society does not have a regular nine to five we work work nights, work weekends, but we, we, we make it, we make it work. That's, that's what we do. And if bringing a pet into your home is, is, is going to bring you happiness and joy for you and for that animal, then who cares if you're loving on that pet at noon or 2 PM or, you know, on Saturday, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And the other piece of all of these two is right now, so many of these pets are they're, I mean, they're homeless today. They, they don't have their, they're maybe sleeping on cement and steel. They don't have any routine. So even even a, a, a less than ideal work schedule for a cat or a dog, well, that's that's better than often their current situation or certainly the current situation for countless other animals that we may be able to have a positive impact on if we if we are if we are willing to be open and have these conversations with adopters. So you've worked with organizations on this issue. Uh, I imagine you've known plenty over the course of your career where you know, it's easier to get a knighthood from the queen than it is to adopt from them. When you're trying to help them understand why that's not the best approach, how do you try to help them understand that? It can be so polarizing. So any tips you have for those of us that are out trying to make the case for open adoptions within our own organization to other organizations in the community, any tips you've got, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's two big points that come to mind to me when you're having those conversations with outside organizations that maybe aren't where you are today. And the first one is data. You come back to the data and be able to show, and especially for you know us larger organizations who have years of data, uh, to be able to show that we don't see higher returns. We just we simply don't. Um, and we're able to impact so many, so many more lives than we would by being restrictive, being able to really point to the data that, look, 
these adoptions are quality and it and it just it just works at the macro level. There's going to be ex anecdotal examples of, of adoptions that didn't work for whatever reason. That's going to happen whether you do 100, 1,000 or 10,000 adoptions a year. But clinging to those rather than taking a look at the entire the entirety of the of your adoptions um you know it's not helpful let's take let's take a big picture let's go to thirty thousand feet and take a look and see all right what 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 are our adoption numbers looking like what are our return rates looking like are, are we a, a good positive voice in our community or or not and and when you when you really take a look, most organizations that are practicing open adoptions are able to see that we're that we're doing more than we were before, or maybe more than we ever thought we could, uh, by by being able to to really be open in that way. And the other, oh sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say the the other thing that I really like to to speak on is this the larger the larger animal welfare industry that we are all one team whether we are a small rescue, a large municipal, a private nonprofit, the, most the average adopter doesn't necessarily know the difference. So a bad experience with one or a different, a negative experience with one impacts us all. It impacts the entire industry. So, so being able to, to really be aligned on some of these practices that it's, it's not scary to go to the animal shelter. You're not going to get slapped on the wrist. You're, you're, you don't have to hide from us. We, we want to be on your team, whether it is a shelter, a rescue group, uh, you know, the, the municipal agency, whoever, uh, that, we are all, that we are all in aligned front. And in, in communities where you can see that, I mean, I, I, think about, I think about Utah, I think about our No Kill Utah initiative and how much progress we were able to make there. It really came from us being all one big team under the No Kill Utah banner and, and, and having regular conversations and thinking about the work that we were doing and, and the, the experience that an adopter might get at one rescue versus another versus at Best Friends versus the local Humane Society. Yeah, it looks different, but not necessarily that different. Uh, we were able to really come together and make positive impact and change. And that that was just such a huge piece of, of the uh, the work we were able to do there. Do you have any favorites when it comes to these arbitrary requirements? I mean, I probably shouldn't call them favorites, but you know what I mean, right? Like you, but you see one and you're just like, ah. Yeah, I th oh, one that is a, that's a big one for me. And it's one that we've, that I've, that we've struggled with in many places I've worked is uh, ages for specific children in the home with dogs. So, for example, if we have a dog who may be reactive or, you know, we see those types of behaviors in the shelter. So we'll put on a, a recommendation that says that, uh, no, no children under 16 can be in the home because of this dog's behavior. And that that's not my favorite favorite one, because, again, we don't we don't know. We don't know what the behavior in the home is going to be like. We can only see a snapshot in time here at the shelter, which is a very stressful place for 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 any dog or cat, we have no idea how they're going to acclimate into a home setting, and we also don't know that the individual children. I mean, there's 16-year-olds who are perfectly ready to move on with their lives and are very mature, and there are 16-year-olds that I'm sure we know that are a long way from launch. And it's it's much it's, it's being able to. <laughs> John's raising his hand right now. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm ready to launch yet. I mean, you know, when you when you think about it, it's just saying we're not going to adopt a pet to, to a family because they have a children who's who is or is not a specific age. I mean, that's as arbitrary as it could possibly get, knowing that we just have no idea what we're going to actually see in the home. And every family, every child, every dynamic is so different. Um, I mean, I've got we have 
we have a, a, a house full of animals and we have a toddler and he, we make it we make it work. We made the choice to, to manage that situation. And I'm sure that if I picked up the phone and called some organizations and said, I have two cats, a dog and a two year old, that would be a short phone call. But um, we we would we would be able to manage almost any situation because we're, we're confident in our ability to do that. And to us deciding for families that they that they can't or are unable to is uh, it's really it's really unfortunate. And so many so often those are the animals. Those are the specific dogs that we struggle with the most. Like those are the dogs we need to get out are the ones that we put the extra barriers in place to under our thoughts of safety, which I understand. We don't want to put anybody in an unsafe situation, but we also don't necessarily know what that means yet. So we need to just be much more willing to take a look at each situation individually. I mean, really, it's about trust. That's what it comes down to. It's just let's let's try to trust each other. Um, people people try to make good decisions. No one's out there trying to make bad decisions for their family or put their you know their put their sixteen year old at risk. Like no one's trying to do that. But our instinct so often is is to not trust or to try to protect our animals uh, rather than rather than allowing someone to to take a chance. The podcast team, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>